We thank you for uh, your word, Lord, and thank you that you give us the privilege to study it. And Lord, we know that we are blessed to be able to to come here and to worship freely and to uh, look into your word together. May we have the mind of Christ as we study and may we um, make the necessary changes that we need to make to conform ourselves to the will of God, especially as it relates to these virtues that we are to put on. And I pray these things, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, clothes are certainly an interesting, interesting phenomenon in our day, aren't they? In fact, Jill and I were talking tonight at dinner about clothes and and uh, just the styles and the trends. And, uh, you know, sometimes I think, well, I, I really probably should get a new shirt or something. And I'll go look at the what's out there. And I go home and I go, no, I think I'll just keep what I have in my closet. And, uh, <clears throat> in fact, I remember when... Uh, we moved into our downsized four years ago. Jermaine was helping us move stuff, and he moved my clothes in my closet. And he goes, Miss Heck, do you wear all these clothes? And I said, yes, Jermaine, I do. I've had some of them since I got married. And I said, you just keep them long enough. They come back in style. And, uh, you know, I remember growing up as a little girl. I was one of uh, seven kids and a pastor's daughter at that. We lived very frugally, and I was fortunate to have maybe one or two dresses to pick from to wear to church on Sunday morning. There wasn't a lot of decision about what I was going to wear today. And uh, as I've gotten older, I have a lot more decisions about what I'm going to wear. And a lot of times we decide what we're going to wear based on where we're going to go. I was telling the ladies in New Mexico this weekend, I, I do have enough common sense to look at my weather app and see if it's going to be cold there. And so what kind of clothes do I need to pack for a trip? Or, um, you know, what, what am I going to wear to church? Or, you know, things like that. And so we do put some time into what we are going to wear. But how many of you went to bed last night or got up this morning, not just asking yourself what you're going to wear on the outer woman, but how many of you went to bed last night or got up this morning asking yourself how I can put on something on the inner woman, how I should clothe the inner woman? For example, how many of you went to bed last night or got up this morning thinking, how could I love my family better today? Or how can I be kinder to that neighbor who just slandered me? Or how could I show forgiveness towards that lady at church that spoke something unkindly to me? How much time and energy do we spend on getting our physical bodies dressed and ready to go in comparison on the time we spend on getting our spiritual man ready to go? And just what are we to put on anyway? Well, Paul is going to give us eight virtues in this lesson that we should be putting on in the inner man. Things that we should be wearing. Let's read them together. Colossians three twelve to 14. Notice what Paul says. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, tender mercies, kindness, humility of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. And above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Now, two weeks ago when we met, um, I actually gave you a wrong number. I said that there were five sins that we were to murder, and somebody pointed out 
out to me that I left one out. There was actually six. So sorry about that. There were six deadly sins that we saw that we are to put to death, that we are to murder. Remember their anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of our mouth, and lying. And so I said five, but there was actually six. Then we saw three motivations for murdering these sins. And if you'll remember, they are, first of all, the old man is gone. Uh, Susan Heck is gone. The old Susan is gone. The new Susan is is here. And so I am to put off those sins because that's not who I am anymore. Secondly, we saw we're being renewed in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Christ. And then thirdly, we saw there are no distinctions with God and there should be none with us. And those were the, they, those were the motivations that Paul gave us. Now, there is a reason that Paul mentions the sins that we are to put off first before he mentions the, uh, the virtues we are to put on. Ladies, think about it. Now that we've rid ourselves of all these dirty, ugly sins, then we're able to what? Put on those Christ-like virtues. For example, would you put a beautiful, um, if you had a beautiful wedding dress, that you were going to get married in, would you put that on over some smelly sweats that you had just gone jogging in? I hope not. You would not want to put a fresh garment over a smelly garment, would you? What would be the point? So now that we've put off all those unchristlike virtues, those ugly sins, now we need to know what are we to put on. So Paul begins in verse 12, and notice what he writes. He says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. Now notice Paul starts by saying, Therefore, therefore, because of what I've just said, because you are to put off all these sins, therefore, because you are elect of God, you are holy and beloved, then act like that. Act like that. Like a daughter of Christ, put on these virtues. In fact, notice, ladies, Paul calls the church at Colossae the elect of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word elect means to select from a number. Select from a number. In fact, the sister epistle that we've talked about several times, Ephesians, Paul writes something very similar. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? So that we will be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, this would be in contrast to what the false teachers were teaching them. Remember, the false teachers had come into the church at Colossae, and they were saying, no, uh, you can't be elect, you can't be selected, you can't be enlightened unless you're like us, unless you're in the know. And so they would not at all think that the saints at Colossae would deserve such titles as elect. But Paul says, yes. Yes, you are elect, and that election is from God, not the false teachers. Now, notice, he not only refers to them as elect, but also as holy and beloved. What does that mean? Holy means to be set apart for God. Beloved talks about a word, agapeo, which talks about God's love that was shown at Calvary, the kind of love that denies oneself for the person that it loves. Paul says you are elect, 
You are chosen of God. You are to be holy. You are to be set apart. And ladies, we who are called of God are objects of the God who, of his love, of the one who chose us. It's the same idea spoken about in Deuteronomy. Remember when uh, God was telling the nation of Israel and he said, you know, I chose you. And the reason I chose you is not because you're something special. In fact, you were the fewest of all the people. But he said, I chose you and I selected you and I elected you because what? I chose to set my love upon you. And ladies, that's the same way it is with us. God chose to select us or elect us before the foundation of the world. And he chose us for a reason that we would be holy and set apart before him. In fact, the word beloved here is in the present tense, which means they will continue to be beloved both now and forever. Isn't that excellent? So God not just loves you tonight, but ladies, he's going to love you tomorrow, and he's going to love you next week and next year when you have another birthday. And uh, even when we get to heaven, we're going to be loved by God. But those of us that are chosen... To be holy, those of us that are loved by God, we have a responsibility, right? God is sovereign in salvation, but we have a responsibility to be holy. Peter says, as he has called you to be holy, so be you holy. Why? Because it's written, be holy, for I am holy. In fact, Jesus himself said in the upper room discourse, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Why? That you would go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. And ladies, part of that fruit that we are to be bearing are the virtues that Paul mentions here in Colossians. If you claim to be a Christian this evening, your manner of life should be in harmony with the kind of life that God's elect should live. And so he chose us, but ladies, we owe him a life that is set apart. Um, Even though it was divine sovereignty that chose us, we have human responsibility, and that is to obey. So, because we are his daughters and we represent him, then we must dress our inner woman in a manner that pleases him. And by the way, since I, this is not in the text, but I'm, I have the freedom because it's my birthday. Well, it's not really. It was several days ago to say this. We should dress ourselves uh, in a certain way in our inner woman. But may I also say, uh, as a daughter of Christ, we should also dress appropriately in the outer woman and uh, in a manner that pleases the Lord. But notice how Paul describes the way God's elect should dress by using the words put on. He says, therefore, put on. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word put on means to be clothed with something to be enveloped in something. It has the idea, actually, of sinking down into a garment. I like how one man describes it. He says, to put on means to become so possessed of the mind of Christ in thought, feeling, and action that you resemble him and reproduce the life he lived. Isn't that great? Ladies, I don't know about you, but there are enough people that are not representing Christ, right? But don't you want to resemble him, look like him? In fact, the word put on is in the aorist tense in the Greek, which means this is a command that should be obeyed at once. No dallying around, no putting it off. It's like those of you that have young children and you tell them, go brush your teeth, go get ready for bed, go pick up your room. Right. 
and you don't mean tomorrow, and you don't mean 10 minutes from now, right? I hope you don't mean that. You need to teach your children to obey the spoken word and do it with a happy heart. That's exactly what Paul's saying. Do it now. Don't put it off. No dallying around. Put on these things right now. Now, ladies, I've met some people that have become Christians, and they are very apathetic about putting off sin. They can't fathom the fact that, you mean I've got to stop looking at porn, I've got to stop yelling at my wife, I've got to stop cheating on my taxes, I've got to stop lying to my employer. Yeah, that's what you got to do, right? You put off that stuff and you put on Christ-like virtues. And Paul says, do it now. No dallying around. Paul says in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? Ladies, we don't play around with sin. We put it off. Now, the first virtue, if you'll notice, that we are to put on, notice what Paul says, is tender mercies. Or some translations say bowels of compassion or bowels of mercy. Now, in the Greek language, the bowels would represent things like the spleen, uh, those inner organs, gallbladder, you know, all those inner things, the heart. And so it came to represent deep passions, uh, like passions of anger and love, those emotions you have. Mercies is a word that means compassions or kindness. Ladies, you know what Paul's saying? We are to put on a heart of compassion or heartfelt compassion. We should be compassionate. We should have tender mercies. In other words, when you know that somebody is hurting, when you see the hurts of others, you should not be calloused in your heart. You should go and try to meet the need. You should reach out, extend mercy, that bowel of compassion, that inner like, I just want to do something to help that person, and then you act on it like the good Samaritan did that hopefully you saw in your homework this week. That is the first thing we are to put on, tender mercies. Now, notice secondly, Paul says we're to put on kindness. What is kindness? Kindness is a gracious disposition someone who's gentle someone who's kind in fact in the greek it was used to describe wine which had grown mellow with age it had lost its harshness it was no longer harsh it was mellow and ladies kindness should not just be shown towards our best friend you know this is where i think the rubber meets the road with those of us that are married right Uh, Sometimes we can be short in our tone of voice uh, with those that we are the most familiar with. I remember before salvation, before the Lord saved me at the age of 30, that my husband used to often remind me of the meaning of my name. Susan means tender lily. And he would say, tender lily, tender lily. And he was trying to graciously, my husband was always gracious in how he confronted me, graciously reminding me that I was not living up to the meaning of my name. Now, I am very thankful that since salvation over 30 or 32 years ago, that God has grown me in that area. Am I perfect? No. In fact, 
as I said, I've had to live this lesson now for two weeks, and I've had to ask for forgiveness from a couple of people for not being as kind as I should be in my tone of voice. But I am thankful that God has grown me in that area. And ladies, we're to be kind to all. I think about what Luke 6.35 says, Love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High. Listen to this. He is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Now, that's hard, isn't it? It's easy to be kind to those that we love. But isn't it hard to be kind to people that are not thankful and people that are evil? I mean, we run into them. If you're out and about, we run into those kinds of people every day. It's hard to turn the other cheek. It's hard to do that. The Proverbs 31 woman, what does it say? She opens her mouth and what? On her tongue is the law of kindness. She's kind. And so I also remember another time when my husband, this was also before salvation, and he said, Susan, you run this home like the military. And I said, I do. And so I didn't notice it, but we had a little birthday party for one of our kids. And I remember Cindy was a little girl. She's probably six or seven and uh, Doug was videoing this whole thing, and, and she came in the kitchen. She goes, Mommy, I want to help you. And I said, No, go sit down, you know. And I was like, I saw that video, and I thought, Oh, my goodness, that's horrible. But uh, certainly wasn't the virtuous woman that opened her mouth, and on her tongue was the law of kindness. So if you ever see me not being kind, I'm giving you the right tonight to uh, confront me about that. So that's uh, something we all need to continually work on is our tone of voice. Now, notice the third virtue we're to put ourselves or to clothe ourselves with is humility. What is humility? Humility is having a humble opinion of yourself, a lowliness of mind. This is a person that doesn't think highly of themselves. Or honestly, I, I believe the best definition of humility is you don't think of yourself at all. It's not that you don't think highly of yourself. You just don't even you don't even think of yourself at all. Now, that's hard, isn't it? I mean, we wake up thinking about ourselves. We go to bed thinking about ourselves, right? But a person who's humble doesn't think of themselves at all. And you know, I found it interesting. Do you know the Greeks never applied this word to themselves? Do you know there's no symbol in their language to describe humility? Even though it is a virtue that should be among Christians. And ladies, I don't think the Greeks are the only ones who do not see humility as a virtue. I think Americans do not see humility as a virtue. I don't know about you, but you listen to the news or you go out and about in the the workplace or go to the mall or whatever. Humility is not something that we see out in public or in the workplace or in the government or even in the church. We don't see very many. In fact, someone asked me the other day, I was having lunch with, and she said, who, do you know anybody that's humble? And she also was getting ready to teach on humility. And I said, no, I don't. I said, my son-in-law probably comes the closest to it. But uh, I said, no, I don't really know anybody that's truly. Now, that's terrible, isn't it? That I couldn't think of one person that I felt was humble, was had a spirit of humility. In fact, um, it seems like the mantra of our day, it's all about me, right? Everything is about me, and the world evolves around me. 
Ladies, that is not the attitude that we should have as a Christian. Paul speaks of this in Philippians when he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. And he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of a cross. That's humility, right? To leave his father, to leave his glory, his authority and come to earth as a baby and die for us. That's that's not thinking of yourself at all, is it? He didn't consider himself at all. In fact, humility is not only seen in our Lord, but it's also exemplified. Remember in, in Luke when the two men went together to pray, one was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. Remember the Pharisee stood and prayed with himself. I think that's so ironic. He prayed with himself. He didn't even pray to God. And Lord, I thank you. Thank you I'm not like that, that man. Why I tithe and I give of all my substance to the poor. And remember what the tax collector did? He beat his breast and he said, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. Remember what Jesus said? That man, the one that beat his breast, he went down to his house justified. He was humble. He realized how destitute he was. Ladies, most of us can mask pride. We can pretend to be humble. But Paul is calling here for a humility that no one sees but the Lord, a humility that takes place in our mind and heart. Now, notice the fourth virtue on what to on our what to wear list is meekness. What is meekness? Meekness is inward grace of our soul. It's a spirit in which we accept God's dealing with dealings with us as good without resisting him, without arguing with him. In fact, it not only deals with our attitude towards God, but with others as well, even when we are treated, not treated like we would like to be treated. In fact, someone who is meek is willing to suffer injury rather than to inflict it. Now, I do want to say one thing about meekness, because I think there are some erroneous ideas out there. Meekness is not weakness. Okay, meekness is strength under control who was the most meekest man in all the world according to god moses moses now how did moses exemplify meekness was he wimpy was he a mickey mouse no he showed strength under control how did he do that i mean how many times did he go to pharaoh let my people go let my people go that is strength under control and then dealing with the murmuring israelites you know Strength under control. Moses was meek. But you know, this is a virtue that is required of all spiritual leaders in the church. Paul tells Timothy, after he tells him what things to flee, he says, but what? Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Meekness. But ladies, meekness is something we all should pursue. Paul says we are not to speak evil of anyone. We're not to be brawlers. We're to be gentle, showing all meekness. To all men. In fact, if you ever confront someone, do you know you're to do it in a spirit of meekness? Paul says in Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual, restore each other in a spirit of meekness. Why? Considering yourself, lest you also might fall into sin. You're to be meek. You're to have strength under control. And can I give you a hint as a married woman now of almost 43 years? Do you know meekness is a strength and a virtue that your husband would like to see in you. 
And I'm not talking about being weak. Your husband doesn't want a weak woman. Somebody asked Doug one time, who holds you accountable? He said, are you kidding? Do you know my wife? Uh, your husband doesn't want a wimpy mouse. He doesn't want a little, yes, anywhere you want. Nor does he want a nag for a wife. He doesn't want that either. You know what he wants? He wants you to have strength under control. That's what Peter says we are to have. He says we're not to merely adorn ourselves, our outward apparel and jewelry and braiding our hair, but we're to have that inner what? That meek and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. And Peter's not calling for never to open your mouth or to be a mouse. He's saying to have strength under control, and it is precious in the sight of God. Well, the fifth quality that is to be put on is long-suffering. What is this? Well, this word describes a person who is not easily provoked by others and does not get angry. Many times it expresses patience under abusive treatment of others. Um, in fact, you remember, I know it's been a long time since we were in Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae in Colossians 1.11. But you remember that was part of his prayer, strengthen with all might according to his glorious power and to all patience. And remember, long-suffering with joyfulness. That was part of his prayer. That's what he had hoped for the church at Colossae. In fact, we learned back then that long-suffering characterized a person who exercises patience, refuses to yield to outbursts of wrath. That's someone who's long-suffering. We don't become angry. It's, uh, as one would say, a long holding out of the mind before it gives room to action or passion. And I think of someone in Scripture who's a good example of this would be Hosea. Remember Hosea? He was long-suffering towards his adulterous wife. And remember, he even brought her back. Uh, and set boundaries after her unfaithfulness. He was long-suffering with her. And again, I think this is a virtue that is needed in marriage. Uh, I know many times, I, I, you know, in, in a marital relationship, uh, you just tell yourself to be quiet, right? Just wait till tomorrow, everything will be better. And you don't need to always, you know, have the last word and to pour out all your stuff in your mouth. Just, you know, wait, be long-suffering, be patient. Well, we move on to number six in our best dress list and on to the next verse. Notice what Paul says. Bear with one another and forgive one another. If anyone has a complaint or a quarrel against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So, ladies, the next virtue we must put on is to bear with each other. This is the sixth characteristic. Now, what does this mean to bear with each other? Well, bearing with each other has the idea of enduring or holding out when burdens are heaped up. Ladies, we should be willing to put up with each other, to bear with each other. And quite frankly, that can be difficult, right? I mean, tonight we have a various amount of women. We probably all have different personalities, different likes, different dislikes. We aren't going to see eye to eye on everything. If I went around the room tonight and took a you know, opinion poll on what you think of Donald Trump, we'd all have, you know, different opinions, right? But we're to be forbearing towards one another. In fact, I remember when I was working on this lesson, my forbearance was being tested towards someone, and uh, it was all I could do not to, not to open my mouth. But the Lord reminded me, I must be forbearing, even when I don't see eye to eye with somebody. 
As the poem goes, to live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory, but to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. So, uh, you know, that's the way it is sometimes, but we're to bear with each other. We all have different opinions, different ideas, and we are to bear with each other. Well, Paul moves on to the seventh and probably one of the most difficult things for us to wear, and that is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Paul says we are to forgive each other, and then he tells us why. Why do we need to forgive each other? Notice what he says. If anyone has a complaint or an argument, even as Christ forgave you, so you must do. Ladies, we forgive. Why? Because Christ has forgiven us. Now, to have an argument or a complaint would not necessarily be the only reason that you might have to forgive somebody, but it's the one that Paul lists here. And so let's define what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is actually the act of excusing or pardoning another person in spite of their shortcomings or their sins. And ladies, may I say that forgiveness also should be shown with a gracious and kind spirit. Um, I've had people that have asked forgiveness, but you know they're not really serious. You know, like, well, I guess I'll forgive you. I mean, you really shouldn't have done that to me. I mean, that's, that's not really forgiving isn't it it should be done not with a scowl but with sincerity with kindness and graciousness as you forgive the person now in the context here the forgiveness is someone we have a complaint against or a quarrel Uh, it could be your husband it could be your son it could be your daughter it could be your next door neighbor it could be a friend it could be a church acquaintance Um, you know christians are not exempt from having arguments are we Don't look so pious. Vern is the only one that's agreeing with me. I mean, even in Galatians, remember what Paul said? He said, now, when Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to the face. I mean, they had a quarrel, and it was over circumcision. They had an argument. And then Paul had another quarrel. Remember in Acts 15 with Barnabas? And over whether to take John Mark on a mission trip or not. And it says the dissension was so sharp between them, what? They departed from each other. Like, I'm out of here, and you're out of here, and goodbye. Now, they must have made up because later on, Paul says, bring John Mark to me because he's profitable for me for the ministry. And so somewhere they, I guess, got every all their differences worked out. And then you have those two women in Philippians uh, chapter 4, Yodi and Syndike. That couldn't get along. And Paul's saying, someone help those women, would you? I mean, I've always wondered what in the world were they arguing about? Probably, you know, what kind of birthday cake they wanted or something, but or the color of the carpet or I mean, who knows? Women can argue about the most ridiculous things. And uh, Paul saying someone help these women. They're not getting along. It's going to destroy the church. And ladies, I say all that because I bring that out. There were several examples of people in the scriptures that we respect and appreciate. The Apostle Paul, Peter, um, that had quarrels. They had arguments. Christians are not exempt from having arguments. But we are not allowed to fester resentment and to become bitter. Ladies, we must forgive. And how do we do that? Notice what Paul says. Just as Christ has forgiven us. What does that mean? This means we forgive in the same degree, the same proportion as he did. And how did Christ forgive us? Was it partial forgiveness? No. 
Did he say, well, Susan, you know, I'll forgive you for that sin you did yesterday, but there is no way I'm going to forgive you for what you've done today. You have just committed the unpardonable sin. I am not going to forgive you. He forgives fully and completely. In fact, the Lord's Prayer puts it well. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Ladies, it's like Peter coming to the Lord and he says, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother? I mean, my brother's sinning against me. Do I just forgive him seven times? I mean, that's a pretty good amount, isn't it, Lord? You know what Jesus says? No, Peter, 70 times seven. Now, ladies, can you do the math? You haven't had any birthday cake yet, so there's no sugar in your brain. 70 times seven is 490 times. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever forgiven someone that many times for the same offense? I don't think I have. I really don't think I have forgiven someone 490 times for the same sin against me. But has my Lord forgiven me 490 times for the same offense? Oh, yeah. Many different offenses. And so should we, right? So Paul says forgive in the what? The same proportion as you've been forgiven. You've been forgiven over and over again. So if someone sins against you, You forgive them. Even from the cross, Jesus uttered what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And you might say, well, yeah, Susan, but he was God, you know. But yes, ladies, he was God in the flesh, you know, right? Peter or Paul says we don't have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was at all point tempted like as we are yet without sin. Do you think Christ was tempted to not forgive? Sure, it says he was, but what he did, he forgave. And he did it without sinning. Joseph is another great example. You talk about a guy that, um, you know, had a right to be unforgiving when your when your brothers, you know, strip you of your clothes, throw you in a pit. That doesn't sound very good, right? And uh, then they sell him to, you know, sell him into slavery. Uh, then he goes to Pharaoh's house, and then Potiphar's wife, you know, tries to have sex with him every day and falsely accuses him and because he runs and gets out of the house then he's thrown into prison and you know the story the butler and the baker forgot I me mean, it's like poor joseph and he comes to the end of the you come to the end of genesis and the brothers come in they're scared because daddy's dead now and they think man joseph we're in trouble and they come and ask for forgiveness and he says i forgive you you meant it for evil god meant it for good and it says that they they wept together he forgave them Stephen, another one, you know, Stephen hadn't been in ministry very long, preached a great sermon, wonderful sermon, giving, giving a thousand years of Israel's history. And, and then he, at the end of the sermon, he says, you stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart, you always resist the Holy Spirit. They didn't like that. So they took up stones. There wasn't little pebbles, these big old stones. That's what they stoned people with in the biblical world. And they start throwing these stones at Stephen. Ladies, can you imagine I mean, just throwing, you can imagine his flesh is ripping. He falls to the ground. It says he shrieked like a raven. You know what he said? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's asking for forgiveness for his people that are killing him. And it says he died. He fell down and he died. Ladies, an unforgiving Christian is a contradiction of terms because we are the forgiven ones, right? We've been forgiven. In fact, one man helps us. He gives three practical steps in dealing with the sin of unforgiveness. And if this is a problem for you, maybe these will help you. First of all, he says to confess it to the Lord. If you have a problem with forgiving someone, confess it to the Lord and ask him to help you mend the relationship. Lord, help me. You know that I'm having difficulty with this person. I'm having a hard time forgiving them and ask him to help you. 
Secondly, he says, go to the person and ask for forgiveness and seek reconciliation. So you might have to be the bigger person. Now, I will tell you, uh, from being in ministry as long as we have and from people that maybe not want to, we there is that verse, as much as possible, live peaceably with all men. There are some men, there are some women who don't want to forgive. And uh, so you can be at least rest assured that you've tried to seek reconciliation. And then thirdly, the man says, give the person something you highly value. And he says, this is a practical approach. Don't give him your husband. But uh, because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So maybe give them some of your time, uh, something, make them... Um, a cake. I remember uh, reading a story in um, a book recently about a man who was having a problem with his. I think I read it this year already to you girls, but uh, their landlord was being really ugly and nasty to them, and they'd prepared all this food for the in-laws that were coming, and and uh, the landlord decided to turn the refrigerator off, and all the food, you know, messed up, and he was just full of bitterness and resentment and ranting and raving, and his wife decides to bake some some kind of cookies or something to take to the landlord, and the husband didn't want to do it, but he did it anyway, and uh, a few months later, the landlord came knocking on their door in tears, and and it gave an opportunity for the gospel. She said, I've never met anyone that has been so kind to me when I've been so evil to you. And so um, that's giving them something, you know, to try to make reconciliation. But ladies, whatever you do, if you have bitterness in your heart or unforgiveness, don't ignore it. I will tell you, bitterness and resentment will set in and it will rob you of your joy. I, I have met many women over the years. I can tell by looking at their faces. They're bitter. They're resentful. And by the way, an attitude of avoidance is not forgiveness, okay? Avoiding the situation, avoiding the person is not forgiveness. Well, after we've dressed ourselves with tender mercy, kindness, humility of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearance, and forgiveness, you'd think, good, that should do it. I'm dressed. I'm ready to go. Well, not quite yet. There's one more article that must go on above all the others. Ladies, it's like putting on your shoes and socks, your underwear and slip, but forgetting the most important garment to put on. That being either your jeans or your dress or whatever you're going to put on. Ladies, you would not think, or I hope you would not think, of going out in public without the final garment. I know today many women are going out in public without that final garment. I wish they'd put some clothes on. But ladies, neither should we think of walking the Christian life without the most important piece of clothing that we need to put on. It's the one that we need to put on above all of them. You know what it is? Love. Look at verse 14. This is the eighth piece of clothing. But above all these things, put on love. Paul says above all these things, above what things? Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing, forgiveness. Above all these things, put on love. Put on love. And notice what Paul says, love, which is the bond of perfectness. What is he saying? This is the uniting principle. This is the girdle, so to speak, that holds all these other virtues together. In fact, love is the binding factor that holds everything together. One man says love embraces and knits together all the virtues. Another man says love is the outer garment which holds the others 
in their places. Ladies, if you try to practice tender mercy, kindness, humility, long-suffering, forbearance, and forgiveness without love, do you know what that's like? It's like Paul says. It's like an empty, meaningless noise. If you try to practice anything in the Christian life without love, it's nothing. It's like a, you know, a tinkling symbol he talks about. Now, it is interesting to notice that Paul does not say it's knowledge that binds all these virtues together. That's what the false teachers were saying. Are you kidding? They wouldn't think that we should put on love. That would be crazy. Paul says, no, you put on love. That's the virtue you put on over all these others. Do you know love is the harder attribute and the one that focuses on our heart? the inner man legalism, which is what the false teachers were practicing focuses on what the outer man. So ladies, when considering the context of these eight Christ-like virtues, and I know it's been a while since we've talked about Gnosticism and the false teachers, but it really is easy to understand. If you think about it, put your thinking cap on why he writes specifically about these eight virtues to the church at Colossae when you consider the false teachers that were invading the church. Because if you've ever been exposed to false teaching or a church that allows false teaching to creep in, what happens? It causes divisions, strife, confusion, arguments, in fact, at the time I was writing this lesson, I tell you, I, it was all I could do. I was so grieved at the strife among Christendom on social media. And I don't have social media, but I still can, you know, I stalk my husband's Facebook account and look on some people's Twitter account. But I was so grieved at what I was seeing on social media regarding the bickering about uh, not only false teaching, but the way in which people were talking to each other as Christians, the hatred, the bitterness that was going on. In my opinion, these individuals needed a reminder of these virtues because they were being extremely divisive and unchristlike. So let me ask you a question. Do these eight characteristics describe you? When was the last time that you extended tender mercy towards someone? Were your words kind today? In conversations, do you find yourself wanting to talk about you or do you find yourself wanting to know about others? Are you a woman who is exhibited by meekness, strength under control? Do you find yourself irritated most of the time or do you bear long with others and with difficult situations? Do you endure under hardships and with difficult people? Is there anyone that you are not extending forgiveness to? Is agape love your motive for showing tender mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forbearance, and forgiveness? Well, what a wardrobe for us to wear. Tender mercies are better than taffeta. Kindness is better than corduroy. Humility is tons better than hot pants. Meekness is strides above moccasins. Long-suffering is better than long johns. Forbearance over furs any day. 
Forgiveness over flannel, and I definitely will take love any day over lace, leather, and linen. Are you dressed for today? Do you have tender mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forbearance, forgiveness, and love clothed in your inner woman? Ladies, I trust you will choose tender mercies over tongue lashings, kindness over knowledge, humility over hate, meekness over malice, long-suffering over lying, forbearance over filthy communication, forgiveness over fighting, and love over lust. What will you choose to wear today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you that you don't try to keep us guessing on what we are to put on. And Lord, it's not that we have limited knowledge on what we are to look like as your daughter, but Lord, we know that so often the old woman wants to creep back in the flesh. And Lord, many times we are given over to anger and wrath and malice and filthy communication, those things that we've looked at already in Colossians 3. And Lord, we know that those are sinful and that you want us to put them to death, put them off once and for all and not pick them up again. Father, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, will give us the grace to fight hard against these areas in our life that are not pleasing to you and instead put on these things that we've considered tonight, tender mercy, kindness, humility, long-suffering, forbearance, and forgiveness, and love above all these things, Lord, that we would put on love that holds them all together. Thank you again for the love that was shown to us at Calvary the death of your son on our behalf. We thank you, Father. Bless in our time together as we fellowship around food and your word, and I pray that it would be a rich time together. For Christ's sake, amen.